Oh, Father, as you reveal yourself to us in this service, especially as we open the pages of your word, I pray that our response would be like your servant Isaiah, first of all, to see by the shining, bright, illuminating, glorious, powerful brilliance of your holiness that we are unworthy as sinners, Lord Jesus, to stand in your presence unless our sin is covered, washed away, atoned for, propitiated by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray, secondly, Lord, as we see not only your glory, but also your power extended to us to redeem and to transform us and sanctify, to regenerate us, that we would join with the angels and the glorious creatures in the the heavens which cry out to you praise and worship and glory proclaiming your attributes and your worth and your works, Lord, singing out and testifying to your sovereign hand in redemption, in history, past, present, and future. We thank you, Lord, for these moments that we have together to share in this worship time, Father, opening your word, thinking about what you have done for us, lifting our voices in praise to you, and enjoying the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace the communion that we have with the saints because of the union we have with Christ. I pray as we open the scriptures that you would open our spiritual eyes to see them this morning, that we would not be like a man who sees our face in a mirror and soon forgets, but that the word would implant itself in our heart and that we would be a doer of it as well so that we might be built on the rock, not just hearers, but doers, Lord Jesus, extolling you and championing your truth I thank you, God, for these moments, and we just give you praise and glory in all that you have planned for today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a glorious opportunity to open up his scriptures together. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Psalm 61. So Psalm 61 marks five years plus of going through the Psalms, one a month. I just want to testify to the Lord's providence and His grace, His kindness toward us, and allowing us to do this, allowing us to spend this much time regularly in His Word through the years as we have opened it together. I pray that we don't take the riches of the freedom to gather and what God has done in your hearts to make this gathering meaningful. I pray that we never take those things for granted. In Psalm 61, we have David Our author, again, in these eight verses, declaring worshipful themes that involve messianic connections from start to finish. I'd like to highlight those for us this morning, touching base and other portions of Scripture, so that we can see from the old to the new the continuous whole of the proclamation and the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. So with your Bible open to Psalm 61, if you're able, stand with me. For the reading of God's Word. The title comes to us to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Psalm 61 1. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. Verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. 
You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've titled this morning's message, Messianic Premonition. There is sort of a foreshadowing, there's an idea, there's a hint, there are, which becomes more clear as we see the fulfilling connections in the New Testament to what David writes about. And in fact, what might have been a little enigmatic, mysterious to him as he wrote, the Lord knows, I guess, how much revelation he had to understand all of the connections of what he prophesied, that is, David, when he wrote. Certainly those who read under the somewhat veiled understanding of the Old Covenant, many of the connections to Christ that the Old Testament Scriptures maintain would have been shrouded and less clear. This morning, with the benefit of the New Testament, I hope to make the case to you that Psalm 61 is fulfilled gloriously in Christ. And it is one of those psalms where David writes, and in a way looking uh, into the distance hundreds of years, and using his experience and the occasion of what his uh, kingship of Israel has afforded him, he's using these things as language tools to proclaim to us the gospel even in the Old Testament, messianic premonition. It would appear this psalm would most likely accompany David's troubled later years as king of Israel. He refers to the king in this passage as if he were on the throne, but he also refers to distance between him and his favorite places, his uh, places where he would long to be, such as the tabernacle. He says, from the end of the earth I call to you in verse 2, when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock. There was a time in the course of David's ministry as king where he himself was exiled from his throne because of the turmoil within his family and the various conflicts that arose that kept him in, at some points distant from Jerusalem. Perhaps this was one of these moments in Psalm 61 where David longed for the courts of the Lord, yet the conflict and the sinful conditions that he was suffering provided distance between him and he was unable to reach that place, his, uh, uh, that location of the Lord's favor which he so desired. As we think about these things, like many stories, it strikes me that the way that David writes and the truth that's here uh, proclaimed is like many stories of near-death experiences you might have heard others testify to. Have you ever heard someone say, I, my whole life flashed in front of my eyes? Sometimes under, in occasions of extreme, maybe psychological pressure or a really significant life-altering event, there's a compressed clarity that comes into our mind and there's an ability to, uh, to process many things at the same time, almost as if we're viewing a movie in very condensed format of significant events that have happened to us. Psalm 61 strikes me as something of that kind of thing, perhaps an illustration to appreciate its depth. It's as if David sees the significant portions of his life and ministry, and in fact all of redemptive history, flash in front of his high, it flash in front of his eyes as he's writing this song. 
and then, and in so doing, giving him, granting him glimpses of eternal significance. As David suddenly proclaims his song of praise in Psalm 61, it contains within it snapshots of redemptive history commemorated in song. These eight short verses seem to contain the shape of God's unfolding plan for His covenant people for all time secured by their Messiah, King. The shape of history, the way that God has revealed redemption and certain stages or steps is actually in the shape of the imagery that David employs, especially in the first half of Psalm 61. You've heard the term, I've used it recently, recapitulation. Recapitulation is a repetition of important phases or stages. And God uses phases and stages through the course of redemptive history to unfold His truth, His revelation, His plan of redemption, His Messiah, who He would be, and His great salvation. David is recognizing these in the Spirit as he writes. He himself fits into that plan by God's sovereign hand. And we can see in part how as we appreciate the depth of Psalm 61. The stanzas of this psalm summarize David's life experiences, the ministry of Christ, the incarnate son of David, uh, many of the experiences of God's people in the formative years of the exodus from Egypt and the entrance to the promised land. And Psalm 61 proclaims the merits of the king of kings. And it does all of this simultaneously, if you will. Psalm 61 summarizes many of David's life experiences, the ministry of Christ, the incarnate son of David, the experience, the prototypical, if you will, experience of the people of God led out of Egypt into the promised land, and it proclaims, especially in the second half, the merits of Christ as king of kings, and does all of this at the same time in just eight verses. David is once again writing in, if you will, the messianic first person. We've mentioned this in the past, but there are times when it's clear that David seems to be writing as the lineage of Christ. He steps out of himself, his temporal personality, if you will, and into a different position as he takes up the pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to write in a transcendent way, in a way that is beyond just his day-to-day life and experience in a way that recognizes the sovereignty of God in his life and the life of God's people in the course of all of history. As we receive Psalm 61 in this voice, the messianic first person, if you will, our thoughts rush forward to its fulfillment in the New Testament account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we've been there for, uh, lately in the book of Matthew, we'll touch on several points in Matthew that correspond to the shape of Psalm 61. As we do so, I just want to remind you, right from the get-go in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the lineage of, of Jesus is laid out, and Jesus is referred to as the son of David, the son of Abraham. The connections as we move through Scripture become more and more clear. Here's a heading for you in just two major points this morning, with four subpoints under each. Heading, Psalm 61 displays a panoramic view of salvation featuring two things, locations and qualifications. Psalm 61 displays a panoramic view of salvation featuring or utilizing location language and qualifications. Under locations, there are three, I'm sorry, four points of interest. The end of the earth, 
the rock that David says is higher than I, uh, the uh, strong tower, which is uh, able defense and, assault, and, and, and an able weapon against his enemies, and finally tent, and, uh, and, and corresponding to that under the shelter of the wings of the Lord. So locations, end of the earth, rock, strong tower, and tent. Under qualifications, verses 5 through 8, the second half of the psalm after the Selah, we find four, perhaps, summarized by these words, obedience, inheritance, eternal life, and eternal kingdom. So the panoramic view, the whole scope of salvation, the sweeping shape of redemptive history, David uses these pictures to display or to communicate them. First of all, locations. Let us consider the end of the earth. What does this mean? And how does David use this language of location to proclaim something the truth of God's gospel. Verse 1, David says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. From the end of the earth, that's his location, his positional language that he's using, I call to you when my heart is faint. In your mind's eye, go back to the book of Numbers for a moment. Numbers is labeled as such because it quantifies by numerical value many things about the situation, the orientation, and the location of the, Israel, of, of the Israelites during their wanderings. In the beginning of Numbers, you have laid out the schematics of their wilderness camping situation. This, these tribes on the east side, these tribes on the west, north and south, and so on. And what was in the center of that uh, schematic there when they would set up camp but the tabernacle? This picture was important for many reasons, not just practical, not just orderly, as far as you know, setting up and maintaining a temporal living space is concerned, but it spoke of a theological truth, that the tabernacle, the place of God's favor, the abiding presence of God, and the hope of salvation for mankind that that structure represents was ordained, was meant to be absolutely central to their existence absolutely central to their experience. They were to feel lost, out of sorts, and aimless if they were to drift very far at all from what was to be the rock, the center, the, the place, the point of reference, the most important binding, unifying element of their community, of their nation. When David finds himself distant from the tabernacle, when he cannot participate in the worship of the same, when he finds himself ostracized, exiled to some degree, he describes it as the ends of the earth. This is to say David may not have been in you know, Timbuktu or in the New World, Australia, or somewhere you know, thousands of miles away, but it's a spiritual idea. Anywhere outside of close proximity to the Lord and to his means of salvation might as well be the ends of the earth, might as well be utter wilderness, desolation, lostness. David longs to return to what is central and what is safety and what is assurance and identity for him. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Later he says, let me dwell in your tent, speaking again of the tabernacle forever. Think of David's life. In the early years after that highlight of being anointed by Samuel, his early years were colored with, much of, uh, with many similar experiences 
as the people of God during their own exile. David became, fell out of favor with, the King Saul, with King Saul at the time, and he spent years in exile and oppression, fleeing Saul, taking refuge in the wilderness. The dry creek beds provided him caves. The rocks became his friends as he would find a little hole here or a hollowed out cleft there where he could find refuge from Saul's armies. He was fraught in these wilderness retreats with the real presence of danger, peril, discouragement, bondage, having in many ways no place to lay his head. And in this way, a picture of even Christ himself. During these times, David knew what it was to have a faint heart, to cry out in his anguish for, from the ends of the earth, Lord, return me to the place of stability, safety, communion, connection with you. Be my strong tower. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Let me dwell in your tent forever. David's years during this time would have informed him with many of the feelings and associations and the idea and the emotional distress, no doubt, recalled to his mind at this time, perhaps later in his life, when he wrote these words. Think again of the nation of Israel, their bondage in Egypt, their exile, their wilderness wanderings. 430-some years in Egypt in slavery, as I recall. The nation itself, the sons of God, as they're identified in the Old Testament scriptures, had this time where they cried out from the ends of the earth, where their heart was faint, where their spirit was broken by the slavery and the bondage and the oppression on their back as they were forced at, under harsher and harsher conditions to construct uh, you know, the great wonders of Egypt and to make these bricks in the heat of the noonday sun. Their heart was faint. They cried out for deliverance. And from the end of the earth, they lifted up their voice to the Lord. They asked Him, or they, they were uh, crying out and desperate for deliverance. And this came through God's servant, Moses. As we think of this shape of exile, where at the ends of the earth, the desperate plight of God's people lifts up its cry to the Lord. Think of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, you can turn there with me if you will. Was there ever a point where Jesus, as the son of David, could relate to some of these sentiments that David is expressing in prefigured form in Psalm 61? Matthew 4.1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Where is he? He's at the ends of the earth, if you will. He's in the wilderness. He's subject to the temptation of the evil one. Verse 2, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So we see Jesus, our Lord and Savior, willingly experiencing this deprivation, this privation of food and drink. He's hungry. He's crying out. And in this weakened state and condition, verse 3, it says, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the devil took him to a holy city, to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. Notice these points of location are similar to Psalm 61. We have the temple, which corresponds to the tabernacle. We have the wilderness, which corresponds to the ends of the earth. The devil says, 
uh, twisting Scripture on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, we think of the rock that is higher than I. And he said to, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. The devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The significance of these moments in Matthew chapter 4 cannot be overstated. Jesus, in his incarnate state, came and endured the same conditions or corresponding conditions as the people of God of old did. Whereas they were unfaithful, David David was no one's Messiah. The children of Israel capitulated in the wilderness, they returned in their hearts to the gods of Egypt. They were willing to sell their soul for the mess of pottage of leeks and onions from the homeland. They began to lust after the conditions of their own bondage. But there was one who would come, who would endure years of exile and oppression, if you will, pictured in these 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, which corresponds to the 40 years of Israel's wanderings. And he would not fail the test, nor would he test God. But he would pass the probation, he would pass the test, and he would satisfy the conditions of keeping uh, the covenant with the Lord by perfect, exact, and personal obedience. This was Jesus as the second Adam doing what Adam failed to do in the garden. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You may partake of any of the trees other than that and live. Adam failed the test. David himself, his whole career was as king and magistrate was fraught with all kinds of, uh, of self-imposed sin and dysfunction. Israel as a nation themselves failed in the wilderness. But Christ himself, when he was exiled to the ends of the earth, as it were, when he was in the wilderness of his soul's testing and despondency, stood on the rock of God's word. And he, under these conditions, and, uh, was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, thus granting him the ability to go to the cross and to transfer that righteousness unto us. These probationary wanderings of the people of God and the covenant works, or the covenant of works in the garden come back into our mind as we consider the shape of history even in this location language of the ends of the earth in Psalm 61. Second location, the rock. David says from the end of the earth, verse 2, Psalm 61, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me, he says, to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. As David, in the course of his life, finally did assume the throne, as Saul himself fell on the sword as the judgment of God for his apostasy, his waywardness and wickedness, David became at that moment, the anointing well, uh, came to fruition, he became at that moment the chief agent of God's law and order for his nation. His kingdom and his lineage were established. All the way, all the way back, I believe in Genesis 49, Jacob is prophesying over his sons, And he says of Judah that the scepter will never depart from him. 
but that his donkey will be tied to fruitful vines, will drink milk, and so on. And there's these pictures of prosperity. There's pictures of prosperity and power, a lineage of authority that will continue. The scepter, which is the law-making authority, which is the standard-bearing power of the sovereign, will never depart from the line of Judah. David himself, at this moment, when he, at the moment in his life and ministry, when he took the throne, was in part a fulfillment of that prophecy. He would rule, he would raise the scepter of God's law over the nation of Israel. And in this sense, he was led up from his place of exile and wandering to a rock that was higher than himself. When David uses this language, it indeed is powerful. It recognizes that the sure footing of God's will and God's revealed truth is higher than anything man can achieve or conceive. The sure footing of God's truth is higher than anything man can achieve in and of himself and conceive in and of himself. Brothers and sisters, let us take a lesson from David's prayer. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Is a better prayer than give me the power to deal with this. Give me the strength to deal with this. A lot of times our prayers are we want to retain control over our situation rather than to submit to the higher law, to submit to the higher place. There are, we live in an age where the faith and confidence and the authority and power and inerrancy, some of us have been talking this week of the scriptures themselves, is becoming lost on many of, the, of professing Christians. Why? Because they consider themselves a high rock and Scripture something or God's revealed truth that they can judge. This is upside down. In this day, as in any day, a mere human ought to confess and pray, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I am desperate like those in the days of Noah, gurgling as the floodwaters rise, unless you give me sure footing in this day and age of well-deserved judgment. This rock that is higher than I could also perhaps be a picture of Sinai itself. Remember, as Israel had cried from the ends of the earth for a deliverer, as Moses had led her out, God's people, then their next stop of import is in the wilderness at Sinai, where the law and order of God is received on stones itself and delivered to them by their mediator Moses, establishing them as the people of God. If the Israelites were to build their life on the word of God, they would be built on a rock that was higher than them. But if they de denied the word of God, if they belittled it, ignored it, treated it lightly, came up with better ideas, and left it behind in their idolatry, then they would exalt themselves above the knowledge of God and they would be cut down and judged. So in the course of Israel's history, there, that rock that was higher than, than them was provided by God in the delivery of His word and law. This was clear in the picture, even as we see the Mount Sinai scenes in our own mind, as the power of God is revealed with dramatic authority, as the elements of storm fire, and even trumpet blasts from heaven fill the ears of the trembling onlookers. This was a picture. It was a picture of the superiority, the power, the law-making authority of God Himself. It was a picture of a rock that was higher than them. 
Did Israel stay sure-footed on the stone uh, of Jesus Christ ultimately or on the word of God? Of course they did not. There was, an, there was another who came though and proclaimed again the rock that is higher than I. And we think of this in Jesus' own ministry. Just recalling to your attention again the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7, What does Christ do? Well, as he is speaking with authority that none of the scribes and Pharisees could boast, that surprised and awed the onlookers who were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He declared that God's law was fulfilled in their ears. He said in Matthew uh, chapter 5, for instance, recalling to your attention, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He goes on to emphasize the application of the law of God as he speaks to anger and murder, lust and adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation. And he goes on to expound. How does he close his discourse? Jesus closes his reiteration of the rock that is higher than us by calling his hearers to build upon it. Everyone, we've read this recently, then who hears these words of mine, Matthew 7, 24, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You see, there is a shape, there is a security There is these pictures of redemption and salvation that recur through the Scripture. David, in his messianic premonition, realized that a great metaphor to describe a place not of his own conception or design or ability was a rock that was higher than him. And if he could reach that place, then he would be unassailable. Why? Not because he was standing on his own merits and abilities, but instead he was standing on the Word and the law of God. And so this is the picture. Third location in the text, strong tower. You have been my refuge, David says in verse 3, a strong tower against the enemy. Notice as he uses these metaphors, we're at number three now. They're kind of progressing to a place of security and now even, of, uh, now even beyond just security to actually taking ground or a place of opposition, a place of aggression. So, whereas he had cried from the ends of the earth for salvation, desperate with faint heart, then he cries that God would lead him to the rock that is higher than I. Then he confesses that the Lord has been his refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. As we consider this language, think about David's primary call as the conquering king that God had had placed him with a special duty to beat back the enemies of the people of God that surrounded the nation of Israel. His primary call as conquering king was to shed the blood of God's enemies who would not affirm that God's covenant was with his people and had given them this land. So David was a man of war. In some ways, he wished he wasn't. In some ways, uh, David had this heart and this desire to build a temple for the Lord, to build him a house. But there's a time and place for everything And there's a particular call to the figures in redemptive history. And for David, as we will soon read a little bit more in 1 Chronicles 21, 
His primary call was, was one of warfare. Think of Israel's conquest of Canaan under Joshua. After they had cried out from the ends of the earth, after they had been led to the word of God as the rock that is higher than them, their next commission was to defeat the enemies in Canaan. They themselves were called to go forth, obey the Lord, and watch the giants, uh, watch the, the giants topple before them and watch the walls of Jer- Jericho crumble before the authority of God. In this way, the strong tower of God and His plans and purposes for His people was evident in His leading His people not only out of bondage, but into Canaan and into victory. Israel's conquest of Canaan reminds us of this language. You have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Think of how vulnerable you would feel as a ragtag band of untrained soldiers, you know, having hiked for 40 years, finally coming to the most fortified and well-established civilizations in the region. I forget how thick and tall the walls of Jericho were, but it's almost hard to imagine them. They were so huge, big enough that homes themselves, habitations and dwellings were built on that precipice. Think of how vulnerable you would feel as just a bunch of nomads on the outskirts of that city. And you look up at that foreboding wall and God has given you a commandment to defeat these people and to, and to declare dominion and possession of the land that they occupy. Well, we know the story, do we not? God gives them unconventional means to declare a war on, the, on those in Jericho. And as they obey His word, which is more important than anything, far better than a trebuchet with flaming oil or large siege stones, they march around obedient to the Lord, and He does a mighty work as the walls tumble. He had become for them in this instance a strong tower. They were vulnerable and exposed and just a a ragtag band of untrained warriors. But because God was fighting for them, And because it was His power and glory that would be manifest in this campaign, He was their strong tower. And that strong tower was sufficient and powerful against the enemy, against any enemy. We have nothing to fear if we take refuge in the strong tower of God. The Scriptures declare the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And so we see in the shape Again, redemptive history in the life of David as he sought God for wisdom and favor to defeat his enemies. As Israel was led into Canaan land and that great conquest of those holdouts that fell one by one before the marching of God's people. We also see Jesus himself waging a warfare campaign against principalities and powers that far exceeded any of these Typological examples. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew 8, so this is the chapter immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, which we just read, where he asserts the rock that is higher than we are. Listen to the narrative account. As Jesus has spoken with authority, now he acts with authority. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain... So there's significant language there as well. Great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. It may go unnoticed to us if we don't have the Old Testament Levitical law in view, but remembering that it was unlawful to even touch the leper, or that which had been determined by the priest as unclean, we see in this act of healing that Jesus Christ has defeated the curse of the law. He has just torn down that great barrier that would separate the unclean from the clean by his miraculous touch, signifying that all who are touched by Christ, all who are in him, are instantly freed from the bondage of their sin, their ultimate malady and disease. This is, he goes on to emphasize these things by his great works that continue. Verse 5, Then when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. We know the story. Ultimately, the man is healed. But I tell you, Jesus says later, and this is perhaps even more shocking to the Jewish ear, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out to outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what has Jesus done? He has conquered the Gentile-Jewish divide. He has demonstrated in the favor shown to this pagan, the centurion, this outsider, this outcast, this Gentile, who nevertheless has faith, that his standing has just changed. He is not separated and exiled and, and ostracized from the people of God because of his ethnic heritage anymore. But instead, in Christ, he is included and so the middle wall of separation is crumbling before our eyes and before the very sovereign acts of Jesus Christ. He goes on to heal many more in Peter's house. A woman is lying sick, his mother, Peter's mother-in-law, in fact. He touches her hand, the fever leaves. This is fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah wrote. He took our illnesses, bore our diseases. The curse of the law, again, is overcome by the hand of Christ, by the powerful miracle working of Jesus Matthew 8, 23, he got into a boat. The disciples followed him. A storm is whipped up in the night. What happens? Jesus says in verse 26, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. The voice of the word of Christ calms the storm. The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Jesus is conquered, demonstrated his authority over even the elements the wind, and the sea, which in the pagan world and in the Near East represented the most uncontrollable fate of fates and, and powerful forces that man must bow to and could never hope to contain. Jesus has spoken to them, and they have obeyed him in an instant. He heals a demon-possessed man, verses 28 through 34. He heals a paralytic in chapter 9. He calls a tax collector to follow him one by one through the course of the gospel, Jesus is taking authority over the enemies of his kingdom. And he is demonstrating that his name is a strong tower against the enemy and will defeat anything that stands in the way. In that course of example, or in those uh, various examples, if you have time to study on your own in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, perhaps the most striking and significant is the man who is healed, the paralytic, who then Jesus 
I'll just read it. Um, it says that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, I'm sorry, back to verse 2, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. He rose and went home. The crowd saw it. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The tower of Christ's authority has defeated every single enemy, death even itself, as the scriptures and the apostles go on to declare. But biggest of all, perhaps most foreboding of all, the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin is defeated by Christ himself who would go on to provide in the shedding of his own blood, the breaking of his own body, the sacrifice for that man he healed that day. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Fourth location this morning, tent. The end of the earth, the rock that is higher than I, a strong tower. And then verse 4, David cries, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Again, back in Psalm 61. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. As we consider this language, again, I'm making the case that these four locations are the shape of redemption. There is a, a, desperate, a, a desperate plea and cry of the sinner, exiled and in, in oppression. There is the word of God that comes as a rock that is higher than I. There is a battle campaign that defeats his enemies. And then there is a tent, there is a reunion, there is a communion, there is a fellowship, there is a relationship, there is a unity, there is a shelter under the loving arms of Christ that is the fulfillment of it all. This is the goal, this is the apex, this is the climax of redemption. That we, having been ostracized outside of the favor of God, exiled to the ends of the earth because of our sin, walking in darkness, blind and dead, might be resurrected to newness of life and more than just given a pulse spiritually, given free access into the presence of God following our high priest and mediator, as Hebrews declares, Jesus Christ, our Lord. David cries out for these conditions to be his experience. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. I would submit to you in David's language when he says under the shelter of your wings, yes, I'm sure, in part, we are to imagine the bird that stretches her wings over her chicks and at the sacrifice of herself and at the threat of her own hurt protects her little ones. But it is more. It is more. Think of the tent itself. Were there wings there? Think of the tabernacle. Think of the temple. There were. The wings of the cherubim that stretched over the mercy seat. David knew there and only there was true solace was a true refuge on the mercy seat under the wings of the cherubim, as it were. This was the spiritual location of favor with the Lord. And only there where the atoning blood was sprinkled, sin was done away with, and God's presence was manifest 
might he be perfectly satisfied with what his heart longed for. This is the imagery of tent. David's greatest desire and ambition was to build a suitable house for the Lord. Turn back to 1 Chronicles 21. This, lang- or this uh, passage may be familiar. Some weeks ago we preached on David's census, which was a great sin, which was judged, and then David himself interceded. It says, And then the Lord commanded the angel to put back his sheath. And this is at the end of David's career, and you can find his hope, his ambitions, his aspirations are boiling down to just a couple things. And one for chief, uh, first and foremost, verse 28, this is 1 Chronicles 21. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. Listen to this note, verse 29. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. Notice verse 30. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now this may well be the exact circumstance that warranted this song. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. For the end of the earth I call to you. My heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You have been my refuge, my strong tower. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Let me pause for a moment and make application. If you are a blood-bought believer in this room, if you are a born-again regenerate follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of His by God's grace alone, you have free access into the throne room of grace in prayer. You have the ability to communicate with the Holy God when, when you uh, follow Jesus Christ, as it were, into that temple not made with hands. At any moment, you can be in the place, as it were, fulfilled to the nth degree that David longed for in type. What David wanted and longed for in symbol and was desperate if he lost, we have every waking moment of the day. In John chapter 4, the question arose from the woman at the well, should we worship on this mountain or on that one? And Christ proclaimed, and in himself it would be fulfilled, that those who worship me worship in spirit and truth. And the limited type and shadow, and the geographic specificity of where God was willing to meet with man would be transcended miraculously, and those who are in Christ are with him and have the opportunity for communion with him at any given moment. This is a great double check for our own affections. Do we appreciate the free access to the presence of God in prayer that we have through the blood of Christ? You and I say, do we appreciate it tonight as we sit down before a meal and say a prayer? Do we appreciate it tomorrow morning as you open your scriptures and read to start your week, as you open up the devotional to lead your family each evening or whenever you do so. If you appreciate it, then you are finding yourself closer to the man who is described as after God's own heart, who understood that the only safe place for the affections to terminate, the only truly desirable, enviable position was where God would meet with man. David decides to do something about this. And again, First Chronicles 22, he says, Here shall be the house of the Lord. 
and hear the altar of burnt offering for Israel. He was going to try to relocate the position. David commanded to gather together resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, stonecutters, dress stones. He begins to prepare large quantities of bronze, quantities beyond wane, cedar timbers without number, and uh, even summoning, calling in favors from neighboring kings to bring in resources for the building of the temple. David said in verse 5, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent for fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. This to illustrate the great lengths that this man of God was willing to go to make preparations to meet with the Lord. This psalm to illustrate the great depth of sorrow of soul he felt when those conditions were threatened. Our second major point, and more briefly this morning, is qualifications. If we read verses 5 through 8, David expects his prayer to be answered for certain reasons. Listen to them as I read. For you, O Lord, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David expects his prayer to be answered, first of all, because of his obedience. Verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. Or does he? David expects his prayer to be answered because of his obedience. Or does he? I submit to you that these four verses, make our, their clarity and fulfillment comes into perfect view as we see him writing, as we understand David writing in the messianic first person. Remember Matthew chapter 4? Who was the only one in history that actually fulfilled their vows to the Lord? That was tempted in the wilderness and passed the probationary period. It wasn't Adam, it wasn't David, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't God's people represented by him. It was one man alone. It was the son of David. I submit to you, ultimately speaking, David is writing in the future, writing as if the future was a reality for him at this time when he says that this, his son, Jesus Christ himself, God will hear him because he will keep his vows. He reiterates this ground of obedience in the final verse. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David does recognize in the course of his work the importance of vows and keeping them for himself. But I submit to you in the context of these verses, the fulfillment of who is spoken of here is definitely under, better understood, ultimately speaking, as Christ. Notice the second qualification, not only obedience, but inheritance. Again in verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows, and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. This could be read two ways. First of all, you could understand it to mean, I share in the inheritance or the reward of those who share my faith. I share in the reward or inheritance of those who share my faith. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. This could be understood in a second way, I submit to you. 
John 17 will be the fulfillment of this second understanding. I actually, the the second uh, way you could understand it is receiving as inheritance or as the heritage those who fear your name. You have given me as a heritage, as an inheritance, those who fear your name. Turn to John 17. We'll touch upon uh, that in closing in just a moment. So obedience, inheritance. Um, I should say also, for qualifications for obedience, remember Psalm 15. O Lord, who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell in your holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart has not lifted up his soul to an idol, as I recall. He walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, speaks no evil to his neighbor, neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. It goes on and on, and basically David confesses that perfect obedience is necessary. You must find that uh, you, you, you must achieve this place of perfection in order to be worthy of sojourning in the Lord's tent and dwelling on his holy hill. David in and of himself never achieved this, but he did achieve it by faith. Faith in the perfect Messiah who would come. And this perfect Messiah had all the qualifications for David's prayer to be answered, of salvation to be answered. He had the obedience. He received the inheritance. And third qualification, eternal life. Back to Psalm 61.6. David prays, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. Do you think David is praying directly and exclusively about himself? I think, I think not. David knows that it will be appointed for him to die. Yet he is praying for a king figure for his life to be extended. That is, he is praying as the lineage of Christ. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. That which his kingship, his office represents, may it endure. And ultimately, the office of David as king will endure in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one of whom the scepter will never be wrenched from his sovereign hands, the one who wields it even now in glory. Fourth qualification, eternal kingdom, obedience, inheritance, eternal life. In other words, that he must be resurrected if he were to die to live forever. Indeed, we find this fulfilled in Christ, but finally eternal kingdom in verse 7. May he be enthroned forever before God, Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. In Daniel chapter 7, we see that ultimately speaking, there is only one who, who could fulfill these conditions. May he be enthroned forever before God? Of whom does David speak? Daniel 7, Daniel himself sees a vision of whom he speaks. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the fulfillment I submit to you. When David cries out for one who would be enthroned forever, before the Lord. We see this fulfilled, do we not, in Hebrews 1, 8 through 13. 
In Hebrews, the language picks up on the messianic premonitions of the Psalms, if you will. And it opens declaring, announcing that their object, their fulfillment has come in Christ. And it identifies that when the psalmist writes in Psalm 45, he writes about Christ. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 102 is cited right on the heels. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. Speaking again of Christ as Yahweh. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. May he be enthroned forever before the Lord. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. Here we have Christ. In closing, finally, this morning, turn to John chapter 17. This is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the true first-person fulfillment of that which David writes in symbolic form. We'll just read verses 1 through 10 and remember what we have covered in Psalm 61 and accompanying passages as we hear from Jesus' own lips the significance of His work and ministry, His inheritance, His obedience, His eternal life, His eternal kingdom. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, his eternal kingdom, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is the inheritance. This is the life. And they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Perfect obedience. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Eternal kingdom. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Remember the inheritance of those who fear the Lord? I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Christ's inheritance. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, Christ enabling David's and our own obedience. Verse 7, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, his inheritance again. Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, the inheritance. And finally, verse 10, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And it goes on. These are the powerful words of fulfillment for what David wrote about in the Old Testament Scriptures, I submit to you. True first-person fulfillment of Psalm 61 
is unveiled in the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, whose obedience, inheritance, life, and glory, and kingdom qualify him as the true Messiah, the forever Son of David. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the beautiful intricacies, the magnificent revelation, the words that are eternal, that have been written and preserved for us to appreciate in our hearing today, that reveal to us Jesus Christ in all of his glory and shades of his fulfillment in his work when he came, died a death to satisfy the conditions, Lord Jesus, that we so needed as faint of heart, Lord, dead in our sin, Christ appeared at the fullness of time and he was sacrificed for us. In so doing, Lord, as our intercessor, he prays and intercedes and gains for himself all whom you give him of his elect. And we now, Lord, become his inheritance and join with him to rule and reign as his vicegerents, sitting with him in future heavenly places. God, it's amazing. Because of your power, we have been included in the story of redemption. Because of your, the beautiful way, Lord, that you have unveiled these truths, we see the office and the pictures of David come to life in the work of Christ our Lord. I pray, Lord, that these thoughts would inspire us, Lord Jesus, in our own faith, to realize that we serve a sovereign who has fulfilled all the conditions, who has given us glorious opportunity to commune with him, and who will continue to sanctify us for his glory and namesake, and will ultimately bring us to that place of perfect communion that we read about in Revelation 21, where the city four square descends, and there is no need of temple there because of the Almighty God and the Son, the Lamb, they shine, and they, Lord Jesus, fulfill what David and all the faithful who went before and we now deeply long for. We thank you for these truths. May they encourage and equip us for your work this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord.